Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. It's a progression of revelation by God. First, he reveals himself to Israelites, then his son, then the spirit. It's a divine condescension. And then God comes down even lower than that to reveal the Trinity, which the Trinity is love. The three persons are love. He reveals the Trinity. And grown men, grown educated men of great stature, venerate a plaster figurine. What is this? What is this that smart, wicked smart men would venerate a baby laying in straw in a manger and go up and kiss him? Who is this? This is crazy. And he'll go further than that. He'll go down even lower than that. Further divine condescension. He'll put himself, his entire self, into a piece of bread, into an inanimate object, and he will take it over as himself. And then he'll go even lower than that. And he'll go into our human bodies that are far from perfect and far from holy. And he will go into our human bodies because he wants to commune with us that bad. He wants us to partake again in his divine nature that bad into the life of the Trinity that he'll give us a foretaste of it here on earth. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he wants to commune with you. That's divine communion. And it's extremely healing. He's humble. That's how humble he is. That's true humility. Last week, we heard Jesus saying to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're anything but humble. Pride always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16. Tonight, we're going to see a Sabbath healing again, the third one we've seen in Luke of a man with dropsy. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler who belonged to the Pharisees, they were watching him, and they were watching him like a hawk. They wanted to ensnare him and get him in another trap. Generally speaking, the Pharisees were self-righteous. They had a pious exterior facade of religiosity, showing everyone just how godly they were or pretended to be. Behold, there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. Dropsy is what we today call edema. It's a swelling of fluids around the heart and lungs, often caused by a weak heart or other organ problems, and you get swelling in the body. It's a very serious condition, and you can die from it. So think of this visual miracle. You've got a person just swollen and full of edema comes to Jesus. There's another icon of it, just the swollenness of his body. Jesus spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's asking them. The law is you cannot work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he's a healer. He's a redeemer. That's his job. Jesus saw this desperate condition this man has. He might even die. And he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus knew the Mosaic law. The Jewish law of Moses did not forbid healing on the Sabbath. It prohibited any work done on the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made for man, for our rest and refreshment, for us to worship. But the Jewish leaders had added these fences around the laws, another 39 regulations about the Sabbath wrapping that law. So Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they were silent. They plead the fifth. They don't say a word. And when he took him and healed him and let him go, 
And Jesus said to them, which of you having an ass or an ox that has fallen into a well will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? So he's asking them, you know, which is of more value, a man, a human life that I breathe my own life into, or a beast, an animal? You're created on the same day. You're both created on day six, but the human's different. I formed him. I breathe life into him. Which of these is more valuable? And they could not reply. It's like us today saying, is a a human fetus or a cat and dog more valuable? Because abortion's legal. We can kill babies, but we want to save the cats and dogs. Which is more valuable, man or beast? This is what Jesus is asking. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. <laughs> Pride is the granddaddy of the seven cardinal sins. Pride is top dog. We all have it. The counter virtue for pride is humility. There's always a counter. Humility, 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 and it's hard. Here's what T.S. Eliot says about humility. Humility is the most difficult of all the virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of self. Isn't that the truth? C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Witty, true. Uh, Lakota Way, the chief Indian says, when choosing a leader, we always kept in mind that humility provides clarity, whereas arrogance makes a cloud. Vincent de Paul, St. Vincent de Paul, the most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility. St. John of the Ladder said, humility is the only thing no devil can imitate. Satan can imitate. He's the king of imitation. He cannot imitate humility because he's full pride, full, full pride. Thomas Merton says this, pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. Fulton Sheen, Venerable Fulton Sheen, only when a box is empty can it be filled. Only when the ego is deflated can God pour in his blessings. Some are already so stuffed with their own ego that it is impossible for love of neighbor or love of God to enter. When we're so full of ourselves, that's not humility. We have to empty ourselves. And, and Pope Francis says the world tells us to seek success and power and money, but God tells us to seek humility, service, and love. Give yourself away. You'll never be happier. So we're talking tonight about humility. Jesus goes on to say, he tells a parable to those who were invited, the Pharisees, and he marked how they chose the places of honor. And he said to them, when you're invited by someone to a marriage feast, do not sit at the place of honor. You know, the front row seat, you want to get the best view of the bride and groom, all that. But Jesus says, don't, don't sit down in a place of honor. Don't make a presumption that you should take the best seat in the house. You know, don't presume that. That's arrogant. There is a sin of presumption. We are so fortunate to have such a good shepherd. Our archbishop, this was at um, the Stevens Center where he goes to serve the Thanksgiving meal every year. I could barely, he's gone many years. I could hardly find a picture of him. I, I searched and searched, finally found this one because he's not doing this for a photo op. You know, he's doing this out of true humility to serve the homeless at dinner. He got there early. There's no people there yet. He's help setting tables. You know, he'll, he'll be the last one to sit down. He'll serve them. He probably will never sit down. He'll probably start clearing plates and visiting with people and, and never eat himself. So choosing to sit at the highest place of honor is a form of presumption. I presume I am to sit here. A lot of people presume they are going to heaven. They think it's a done deal. They accepted Jesus on March 13th at 3 p.m. and they're never, they're assured of their salvation forever. Nothing can take it away. People presume they are getting to heaven. When you are invited by anyone to a marriage feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest a more eminent man than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
So it's better to have humbleness versus humiliation. Don't presume. Wait for an invitation. Don't presume. Well, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. And then when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So wait for the invitation. Don't presume. That's much humbler. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So stay little so you're not humiliated. And that's what Teresa Lasso did. She stayed very, very little, very tiny, very small. She says, in my little way, there are only very ordinary things. She was so simple, so little. And she's a doctor of the church now. There are only four women doctors, and she's one of them. In her simple little, little, littleness. So do wait for the invitation. Don't presume and stay little, stay small. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble means having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Be lowly, be poor, undistinguished, mean, of low means, modest, underprivileged, common, ordinary, simple. Those delight the Lord. And that's what Mary was. She's the humblest creature that we know of in the Bible. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state. She's lowly. She's of lowest state of his handmaiden. That's a servant of the Lord. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. She's bragging. That's not very humble. She's not bragging. She's truthful. All generations are going to call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Not my name. His name. She's humble. And his mercy is on those who fear him because she has a holy reference for the Lord. A holy deep respect is the beginning of wisdom to fear the Lord. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And he has put the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He loves the lowly, the poor, the simple. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has also said to the man who had invited him, back to Luke now, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your kinsmen, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back in return and you be repaid. Don't do that. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. How often do we invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind over for dinner? And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You know, sometimes we only want to return a favor. Oh, they had us over a couple months ago. We really should have them. Hey, we should invite them because maybe they can help us with that fundraiser. That we, you know, you just have all these little things in your mind. No, <laughs> no. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There will be no payment on earth. Invite those who can't pay you back. The payment will be on the last day, the day of the final judgment. Some will be taken up and others will go down. That'll be the time when your payment will come. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Mother Teresa has 15 tips for humility. This is her humility list. Number one, speak as little as possible about yourself. Number two, keep busy with your own affairs, not the affairs of others. Number three, avoid curiosity. Curiosity leads to questions, leads to gossip. Number four, do not interfere in the affairs of others. Number five, accept small irritations with good humor. Number six, do not dwell on the faults of others. Number seven, accept censures, even if unmerited. Be able to accept criticism humbly, even if it's not deserved. Number eight, give in to the will of others. 
You don't always need your own way. (laughs) Number nine, accept insults and injuries. Number 10, accept contempt, being forgotten and disregarded. Be courteous and delicate, even when provoked. Do not seek to be admired or loved. It's also part of the humility prayer. Do not protect yourself behind your own dignity. Give in in discussions, even when you are right. Choose always the more difficult task. That's true humility from Mother Teresa. That's beautiful. Okay, we're getting a lot of parables in this section. We had last week also. My friend has a Webster Dictionary from 1977, and I always have her look up a word for me because the meanings are different back then because our culture has changed the meanings of words. Parable comes from the Greek, and it comes from the Greek word parabolic, and it means to throw more at the devil. So every time he does a parable, he's throwing more at the devil. What does that mean, to throw or to cast more at the devil? He's making a comparison between two things, and what Jesus is comparing is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Satan. And so he's throwing more at Satan because he's ushering in his kingdom, the kingdom of the living God, and Satan's kingdom is being thrown down. This parable of the dinner guests, this is a new parable, and it's only Luke has it, okay? It's a parable of the great dinner. When one of those who sat at table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now you guys are blessed because we get to do that. That's what mass is. So we get to eat bread of the kingdom of God. We get a foretaste of it here on earth before we go to the final great feast in the sky one day. But blessed are you who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. He invited many, 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 many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for now, all is ready. Now, the bread of life, the incarnation had come in the house of bread. He had done everything perfectly. And this great banquet, the mass, we'll see it on the earliest catacombs painted. It's called the agape love feast, the great feast, the great bread. And it's the heavenly feast of the Lamb of God, and we're participating with it in heaven. It's outside of time and space, and the sacrifice of the Mass, the unbloody sacrifice, participates at the same time in the heavenly feast of the Lamb of God. And at the time of the banquet, he sent the servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for now all is ready. But they all alike began to make up excuses. I can't, I can't come. The first one said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. I pray you have me excused. I can't, I come. And another said, I I bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. I pray you have me excused. I cannot come. And another one said, I've married a wife. I cannot come. Therefore, I can't come. I can't come. Now, all those things, they're all excuses, right? They're all attachments to the world that they can't give up. Today, we'd say, well, I got a house. I got two properties. I got to, I, I, I can't come. I, I have too many worldly attachments. I got too many things I got to do. I'm too busy because I, I can't come. St. John of the Cross warns about being attached to things of the world or anything, even good things that we get attached to. Here's what he says. The soul that is attached to anything, however much good there may be in it, will not arrive at the liberty of the divine union. The freedom of the divine union with the Trinity, if you're attached to things. For whether it be a strong wire rope or a slender and delicate thread that holds the bird, it matter not if it really holds it fast. For until the cord can be broken, the bird cannot fly. You will be, if you're attached to worldly things, it doesn't matter if it's a rope or a little piece of thread. You're still attached to it. 
We're supposed to give up all of the attachments that we have. Everything. Some people are attached to money. Some people are attached to their intelligence. Some people are attached to power. Some people are attached to whatever. Being fully detached from worldly attachments. To be all in. That's what he wants. So they say, I can't, I can't, I can't come. I can't accept the invitation. So the servant came and reported this back to the master and the householder in anger said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame. That's the same people as the other parable. The same people, the ones that can't repay, invite the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame to come. If the people that were originally invited won't come, fine. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Same thing. Grace is free. The invitation is free. And it's for all. Every single human person has received the invitation from the Lord and it's free. Come, drink without price, without money. It's free bread. It's a great feast, a free banquet. It's ready to be served. And everyone had a myriad of worldly excuses why they cannot attend the banquet feast. No excuses. He doesn't want excuses. It's an intentional thing to deny an invitation. Back in those days, the whole town came. It was a seven-day wedding. The whole town shut down. They'll tell you when to come because they're getting everything ready. And then they'll send out the servant. The feast is ready. The wedding's ready. Come, come, come. I can't come. Stop making excuses, says the Lord. Either you will find a way or you will find an excuse. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, then go out to the highways, the hedges, compel the people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Because his banquet's the bread of life. And if you eat this bread, you will live how long? Forever. He wants to feed you free bread. Compel the people to come. Tell them I want my house filled. That's what the new evangelization is. We're supposed to compel people to come to the banquet. Invite someone to come to mass with you. Inviting people to the banquet of love, the agape feast of love, the bread of life is there and people don't want to come. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. They always resist the Holy Spirit. They know the truth deep down in the core of their being and they won't come. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't want your invitation. Our new saint, Pope Paul VI, says in Evangelii Nutariande, that the church exists in order to evangelize, to compel the people to come. That's why the church exists. Tell everyone, invite everyone to the great love feast. Who were the first invited guests? Who did God reveal himself first to? The Jews. In Jeremiah, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. He revealed himself to them first. Sirach says, Have mercy, O Lord, upon thy people, called by thy name, upon Israel, whom thou hast likened to a firstborn son. Hosea, the grapes of the wilderness. I found Israel like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers who were the second guests he invited. Some of these Jews didn't want to come. He revealed himself to them. The second guests are the Gentiles. And here's what Paul says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The election obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, the elect obtained the kingdom of God. Peter, the 12 apostles, the 3,000 Jews that were baptized that day, and many more that believed in Jesus Christ, the elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, just like Pharaoh. Down to this very day, says Paul. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. 
But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, the resurrection of the body on the final day? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay? So the servant said to the master, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still more room. And the master said, Go out to the highways and hedges. Compel the people to come in that my house be filled. Gentiles, go tell the Jews. Go tell any non-believer. Go tell anyone. Invite anyone. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited will taste my banquet. If they don't accept the invitation, they will not taste my banquet. It's their choice. They RSVP'd no, or didn't even RSVP. The Jews first, the Gentiles second. But the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. But all are invited to the feast. And there's still time. There's still time to come. Now, last, he talks about the cost of discipleship, and it is costly. The fourth commandment is honor thy father and mother. It's the only one with a promise, and you will have a long life. So then why would Jesus say this when great multitudes, huge crowds are accompanying him? And he turned and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. It's quite a hyperbole. He wants us detached from everything. From all worldly attachments, anything that would keep him not first, not number one, not letting us be all in. He's asking them to count the cost, what it's going to take to follow him and to see, to evaluate, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I can't be attached to absolutely anything to follow you, Lord. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And Luke's the one that told us, Pick up your cross daily and follow me. And not just picking up my cross, but yours too. Because the same thing that's asked of me might be asked of you. They killed me. They might kill you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Count the cost. What's it going to cost to follow me? Following Jesus will cost you. It's free. He paid the ransom. A great price he paid. It's free, but it'll cost you. Like free cheese on a mousetrap. It's free. But it's going to snap. And you might have to lay down your life for him. You will. You will spiritually lay down your life for him. You might have to physically too. And then he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough to complete it or not. Do do you have what it takes to be a disciple? Do you have enough money to finish this tower? You plan. Otherwise, when you've laid the foundation, you're not able to finish it. Everyone's going to mock you and say, ah, that man began to build, but he couldn't finish. He wants us to count the cost to know what we're getting into. He says, what king could go encounter another king in war and would not first sit down and take counsel whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet this other king who has 20,000 men? You got to know your enemy. You have to have battle strategy. And this guy, you know, of course, that's not going to work. So he's going to need to send in a crew to surrender. And if not, while the other is yet a way far off, he sends an embassy and asks for terms of peace. You have to know. You have to have strategy. You have to know what you're laying down. You have to count the cost. 
So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all, we have to renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's costly. The cost of discipleship is high. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Will you lay down your life for my kingdom? The blood of the martyr is what seeded the church. The blood of the martyrs seeded the church, made it spread and grow like wildfire. The first Christians, many of them laid down their life. It was a high cost of discipleship. We have it easy, kind of. Today is the Feast of St. Lucy. She was a young, young virgin martyr in 303 AD. Humility. He wants humility, counting the cost. Have you ever made the mistake of buying fat-free half and half? I came home with an extra large one and put in the coffee. Steve said, what is this? I'm like, oh, shoot, it's fat free. (sighs) Never made that mistake again. Have you ever made the fatal mistake of buying unsalted peanuts? (laughs) Oh, they're unsalted. Shoot. Because salt is important. Salt is important. This is the last thing. Salt goes back to 6,000 years before Christ. It was first mined in Romania boiled spring water to extract the salt. It was very crucial for food preservation. In the hot Middle Eastern sun, they would pickle the salt the fish. It was a preservative. It became a very important article of trade. It was brought by boats across the Mediterranean Sea. There were special salt roads built, and it would go across on camelbacks in a caravan. It led to wars sometimes. The scarcity and universal need for salt led nation to go to war over salt and tax revenues. Here's what the Jews did with salt, ritual customs of Jews with salt. Salt was considered as the most necessary condiment on the face of the earth, and therefore the rabbis likened Torah to salt. And the world could not do without salt, neither could the world do without Torah, the word of God, the law of God. And a meal without salt is considered no meal at all. Forget it. Salt was important. And Jesus said, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. Men throw it away. He who has ears, let him hear. He's asking us tonight to not lose our saltiness. Don't lose your flavor for him. Don't fade. Don't fade out. Let your light shine be the salt of the earth. Don't lose your flavor for the Lord. He needs us. He needs us to enhance his meal. That's what salt does. He needs us to help preserve the faith. That's what salt does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word tonight. We thank you that the breath of God has been breathed into us, into our eternal soul, and that you care so much about having a relationship with, a a communion with us. You want us to partake in your divine life once again and get back to the Father. Jesus, thank you for being the way back. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sanctifying our temples. Thank you, God the Father, for recreating us and recreating us and recreating us whenever we repent. Uh, Lord, we come to the advent of the Messiah, and we're excited for you to come into our lives. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 14, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.